Hello, all, and welcome to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. My name is Allison Schmidt, and I'm the director of the Life Sciences Project at BCLT. Today, Brian Matsui from Morrison and Forster is joining us for our podcast series, Beyond the Holding, a nuanced look at the Federal Circuit's patent decisions. Thanks for joining us again, Brian. Thanks, Allison. Uh, so today we're going to discuss the recent life sciences decision, uh, Teva Pharmaceutical versus Corsep Therapeutics. Uh, this is an appeal from a PTAB decision on obviousness from a post-grant review. We'll go ahead and let Brian take, take it away, walking us through the decision. Great. Yeah, so this is a decision that came out in uh, December 7th, and it's, it's an interesting obviousness decision. It's one of those decisions where you, you take a look at it and... I think the first reaction that a lot of people have is there was clearly strong motivation. And it's one of those cases where people think, well, the claims here really seem like they might be obvious. Uh, just as a bit of background, uh, this involves um, the patent owner Corsept. And basically they did a clinical trial on a drug, Mofupristone uh, for Cushing syndrome. And they basically found out from their clinical trial that there are good results for dosages of 300 to 1200 milligrams per day. And they, you know, submitted a new drug application to the FDA, which got approved. But during the approval of the FDA included some post-marketing requirements. They basically required the patent owner to do a clinical trial to see if there was a drug to drug interaction between mufuprestone and another type of drug. It's like a strong CYP3A inhibitor. The FDA wanted to see if there's a safety risk if you use those together. So basically they had to do this additional clinical study. Um, but the drug was approved for 300 milligrams all the way up to 1200 milligrams. But there was a bit of a limitation on that, that you were only supposed to dose at 300 milligrams per day with that other drug that they wanted the, the patent owner to do a study on. And so this is where it got interesting because Corsep did the study and they found out that you could tolerate up to 600 milligrams per day with this strong CYP3A inhibitor and they got a patent on that. And so basically the FDA told them, you know, in what would be a prior art document that you need to do this and they did it and they ended up getting a patent on that. So as a result, Teva sought post-grant review and they thought they had a pretty strong obviousness case, I would think, because they basically had the FDA saying, do the study to the patent owner, the patent owner does the study. And then that's what leads to the actual grant of the patent. Well, the end, they ended up failing before the PTAB after there was institution of post-grant review. And it's ended up being one of those reasonable expectation of success decisions. And I think that's a little bit interesting because there aren't a ton of reasonable expectation of success decisions. I think that when you look at the federal circuit, you see a lot of motivation decisions, you see fewer reasonable expectation of success decisions. And, and basically what happened was the, the board said and the court agreed that you know, as a matter of fact, there was no reasonable expectation of success that you just wouldn't expect that that the specific dosage, 600 milligrams, would work in combination with the other drug. Thanks so much for that explanation. So there was also some expert testimony involved in this reasonable expectation of success analysis. Can you walk us through what the court did with that? Yeah, I mean, so in, in that, when they sought you know, institution, uh, Teva had an expert that basically gave you know, some good testimony that said it was reasonably likely that 600 milligrams per day 
of mofuprestone would be well tolerated and therapeutically affected when co-administered with a strong CYP3A inhibitor. And that was enough to basically get them, you know, across the board, across the line of institution. But then when it actually came to the board's decision, that expert testimony basically got impeached. And there was basically testimony from that expert that would indicate that you wouldn't actually expect any success with, you know, 600 milligrams per day. And so that was sort of the hurdle that Teva had to overcome, you know, before the board and before the court, which, which they basically couldn't overcome. I, I think the way that they presented the case though wasn't wasn't necessarily that you needed to get that reasonable expectation of success for that 600 milligrams per day. It was really more like this is just routine optimization. You know, the FDA said to the patent owner that you have to actually do this clinical trial. They did this clinical trial and they got the result and they got a patent on it. Well, that is certainly just obvious to try because they were told to do it. It certainly is routine optimization. And so in essence, you really don't need to show a reasonable expectation of success in order to you know, show that you would get that actual 600 milligrams per day to be well tolerated and therapeutically effective. That raises the question of what, you know, to, for Teva to satisfy its burden on reasonable expectation of success, what evidence would have been sufficient? What did they, what did they actually need to show here? How could they have gotten over the finish line? I mean, I think that it didn't help, obviously, that their expert effectively was not credited because of the inconsistent testimony. I, I think that this is one of those decisions that had the board, you know, found as a matter of fact, that the, 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 the first declaration that was submitted that basically said that it was reasonably likely that 600 milligrams per day would work, if that had been credited and there'd been a factual finding on that, that would have been substantial evidence and they would have probably cleared the obviousness hurdle before the PTAB. And that probably is something that, you know, is difficult to overturn on appeal given the standard of review. I mean, you know, it's sort of a side note, the standard of review often can dictate a lot of these these issues when you're dealing with an appeal from the PTAB, when you're dealing with something like reasonable expectation of success, that's a factual question. Although I do think that from Teva's perspective, you know, maybe reasonable expectation of success was something that really didn't need to be shown here, just given the type of case it was. You, you can have sort of the motivation to combine a reasonable expectation of success cases on one side, and then on the other side, you might have like the obvious to try or, or some, some other type of obviousness analysis. And I think that they were trying to put themselves outside of that, that motivation, reasonable expectation of success you know, camp. That all makes sense. Uh, do you see any daylight or distinctions between this decision and other federal circuit jurisprudence on reasonable expectation of success? Or do you think that this just sort of follows along the same line of cases? I, I mean, I think it generally follows along the same line of cases. There's just not a ton of precedent, as I mentioned, that, that's out there. And I think that, you know, if you look at the, the court's opinion, it's careful to say that you don't need sort of absolute predictability. It, it uses the same buzzwords that you see in all the other reasonable expectation of success decisions. So in that sense, I don't think that it, it sort of creates any new ground. I do think that it, it does show that there is this importance to having reasonable expectation of success um, in some cases that you might not expect it, even though, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't explicitly require it in KSR or in Graham. It seems like in some cases, even though you might not expect it to be an issue, it actually could end up being an issue. Uh, another interesting feature of this case is the discussion of prior art 
or in, in, in particular, the discussion of claim ranges of value. So can you walk us through how, where the court ended up there? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's another area where I think that the, you know, the, the, the challenger thought that they had a strong case because the prior art basically showed that you would dose uh, mofuprestone from 300 milligrams to 1200 milligrams per day and the 600 milligrams that was claimed fell right smack in the middle of that range. And, you know, as you know, from, from a lot of the federal circuits range cases, once you sort of have a range like that and you have a, um, a number like 600 milligrams that falls squarely within the range or even near the range, that's sort of a prima facie case of obviousness. And then the burden of production then will shift to the, the patent owner to sort of show some reason that there would be patentability. Uh, at least with some evidence. And, you know, this is a case where the federal circuit basically said, well, the range cases don't really apply here because you're talking about a combination, not just a single uh, application of the 600 milligrams a day of mofuprestone. You're talking about mofuprestone and the other, the other drug. And so that's how it distinguished the range cases. Um, the other thing it did is it looked at the, you know, it sort of imported in some reasonable expectation of success logic in there because it um at the end of its analysis it basically said you, you can't rely upon the monotherapy alone given it's early, the court's earlier reasonable expectation of success determination fantastic uh any other takeaways that you want to share with us from this case i mean i think that the one thing that you were sort of talking about with the range cases that, that again sort of is interesting and i think it follows the whole sort of trend of what we're talking about was sort of that last part about reasonable expectation of success sort of going into the range cases analysis, just because usually you don't think about reasonable expectation of success when you have a range case. You usually just think about it in the fact that here you have the range and then the claims fall within the range. And so now, therefore, you have the prima facie case of obviousness. But the court's opinion by importing reasonable expectation of success into that analysis, you know, maybe not directly, but at least adjacent to that, it sort of indicated that there could be some additional limitations that are put on range cases. Although this is sort of different, of course, just given the fact that it's a monotherapy versus a combination. Fantastic. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Brian. And thank you listeners for joining us on the BCLT Expert Series podcast. See you next time.